0: welcome to accelerated my podcast on the cross-section of technology capital and the world we live in on this episode my guest is dr tia kansari sustainability expert multi-award-winning entrepreneur and economist who's consulted some of the world's largest brands like coca-cola formula one and mit don't forget to check out my book accelerate the startup on amazon ibooks or audible if you're diving into the startup it will save you a lot of heartache and headache If you're new to the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Now, get comfortable as we explore the all-important topic of sustainability and how it makes for good business. Dr. Tia Kansara is a multi-award-winning entrepreneur and economist, the youngest to ever receive the Royal Institute British Architects Honorary Fellowship. She's the co-founder of the first ISO-certified sustainability lifestyle consultancy and CEO of Replenish Earth, a cause and uh, collective action to protect the global commons. Tia is considered one of top 100 most influential leaders in tech by the Financial Times and inclusive boards. She's worked with Coca-Cola, Bloomberg, the European Commission, Forbes, Formula One, MIT, and Siemens. She has a number of publications and peer reviewed journals covering a number of topics from uh, sustainable cities to human performance. Among many of her academic credentials, she has earned a PhD in energy efficiency and sustainability from the University College of London. So let me welcome Tia with us here. Welcome to the show. Thank um, you very much. Thanks for being here. Very excited to talk to you. It's been some time since we connected. Uh, what we were uh, chatting about before the show is that social media. Uh, does have some positives right once in a while we get to uh, we get to connect uh, in the real world and then we get to uh, keep in touch uh, on the other side of the world for many years and um, haven't seen each other in in a few years right but uh, we we keep in touch time to time here so i 'm very glad to have you on the show. Um, my audience is uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and capital, but um, I, I believe your topic is quite unique and interesting to this audience and very very important. So uh, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and uh, for me, there's a silver lining, is that I think people starting to finally realize what a crisis feels like. And um, we know, and a lot of people that are kind of awoken and, uh, and aware, realize that the uh, climate crisis is far worse and permanent. It's not a temporary sit at home and, and watch a Netflix type of situation. So talk about your perspective on this.
1: Mm. I mean the first aspect is really yes people do watch documentaries on Netflix and yes it is a great way to reach out to to people. My perspective on the pandemic as well as it being you know almost um, relatable in so many ways to the climate crisis is that there's so much denial. Um, First person experiences aren't really there and so it's very difficult to put it into perspective when somewhere in California there is a fire and in England you've got your windows open where whereas our friends in California have their windows closed and air filtration on so it's that first person experience which is really difficult to have it's when you've got that as a a very dear friend of mine calls it the minimum viable shock it's that little bit of information that little bit of experience that kind of your senses being in situ which will allow you to have perspective on something that is much greater. And I think those kind of connection points are really difficult to identify, especially if we're living in a somewhat physical, digital, social, echo chambers. And these echo chambers can actually be detrimental to our health, like we have seen in the most recent documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, that mm-hmm. nothing of this is new.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was very strange to wake up and and look at a red sky uh, here in California uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, Very, 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 very different than our normal blue skies. Um, Of course, in Europe and northern Europe, they're usually gray skies, but um, California, we're a little bit spoiled. So do you think um, do you think ultimately people are waking up? Do you see that as well from your lens, from your perspective?
1: It's fascinating. You know, um, the last couple of days I've been, for my woes, decluttering, uh, one of my big activities that I've had on my list of uh, to-dos. And I was just going through documents upon documents like 10, 15 years ago. I'm really bad at decluttering. And, you know, just picking up a a variety of sort of papers, uh, like, you know, Japanese papers, things that I've like collected from over the years, and I'm amazed at the amount of movement that we're experiencing today. You know, all of this, you know, the, the things that were relevant 10 years ago, reading sort of articles from The, the Economist to um, New Scientist, the kind of like science that has moved from, you know, hey, look, this is where we might have to reconsider our relationship with stem cells and the research that we're doing. Hey, look, we might have to be considerate about the kind of digital ecosystems that we're creating. I mean, there has been so much movement in this space. And it's actually quite difficult, even for somebody who is so passionate about it, um, to keep up, to keep track of, of in which direction it's going and which way is it flowing, especially when it has economic drivers, when it has climate related drivers for a number of people, you know, people are making decisions on. Where do they want to live? The next wave is coming in the UK and we're ready. And, you know, we're basically locked down after 10 p.m. So what does that mean for us when we're preparing for another set of unknowns? And many people who have isolated in, you know, during lockdown have wanted quite desperately to have community around them and to have people who also understand and value the things that they do. So it's a really interesting moment in our lives for a sort of like an unwinding and a winding up the unwinding of the way that nine to five existences the mortgage right like the grip of death uh Michael Rawbottom's book um you know all on the the sort of the, the methodologies that have been created for this automation like the Alvin Tofflers of the world creating that sort of future shock scenario where we are ultimately part of a mechanism part of a machine. We're a cog in the system. We're a number in that you know itinerary. And I think that that sort of you know methodology has really helped in identifying ways of scaling, of becoming in economic terms, scaling up and growing exponentially. But it has consequences. It has consequences on our health. It has consequences on our families. And I think that's where the unwinding piece has been really taking place where we're able to see, is this what I actually really want? Do I wanna be stuck on, you know, I don't care if it's a penthouse, but do I wanna be stuck in a penthouse where I can't really freely roam um, in the center of London? Would I rather be, and then dot, 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 would I rather be in New Zealand? There's chatter about being in nature way more because that's part of, you know, what we call our mental health, our ecological health, our, you know, the, the inner wild of what we, you know, what our essence is. And I think that closer to that essence is an awakening really of that transition that the COVID has actually put us through this sort of like strange chrysalis that we're in from the caterpillars that we may have been to the transformation that we're going through to recognize this global relationship that we have now created with a global population who is also experiencing something uniquely, but together so it's really amongst the first ever experiences especially for me in my life that something has become so globally relevant and you know aside from you know second third fourth order effects this first order effect this first experience this subjective experience is something that we're all having and we're trying to put we're trying to make sense of it what does this mean for me what does it mean for my children if we go into another lockdown is the economy going to crash well, we're in recession already. So is it going to get worse? Are we going to have XYZ available in terms of resources? So there are very big questions people are asking. And when it comes to the climate and how the climate is in response to the way that we're living, such as the other documentary that is coming online at Netflix uh, with David Attenborough, but also iPlayer Mm -hmm. with Extinction, are these conversations that require wrapping up these arguments, wrapping up the science, understanding where the science and... You know the 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 fiction actually really does lie and where there is and, and naturally there will be many questions because we can never be 100 percent certain about absolutely anything and so how can we be certain about impending you know extinction the planet's going to continue you know the planet doesn't need us to survive we need the planet right. to survive
0: yeah i remember when uh, when we met at tedx san francisco we both spoke there five years ago now time flies um, I remember your topic was about replenishing, so kind of the the opposite of consuming and and uh, resources, but actually putting resources back in a sense. Um, and it's interesting how it's it's a few years later now, and how society, with potentially with the help of COVID and everybody, kind of shocking the system and making everybody think, or many people, let's say, think about how they live and making changes that. Uh, Perhaps we can go in the right direction, and maybe there's a silver lining to this whole thing. So, um, so if we look at business a little bit, um, a little bit closer, and kind of uh, you know tie this into how businesses can think about this, how entrepreneurs can think about the integrating these uh, these ideas and these uh, values into their business. You know, when I was starting one of my first companies, I was determined to include a uh, a CSR role right? A, a sustainability role. And to me, it was kind of natural, but I didn't know any better. And one of my advisors um, who became an investor later said, you know, that's that's all great, but don't do it on my money. You know, do well uh, with, uh, with the company and then do good with your own money later, you know, put it towards uh, things that you care about. Do you think that, you know, I, I think the answer is yes, but I would love for you to kind of uh, expand upon, you know, why this might be misguided Uh, advice uh, even more so going forward?
1: A couple of things. Larry Fink most recently mentioned that if you don't look after the planet, you don't have much of an investment. Our resources come from the planet. Our relationship with the planet is thoroughly, you know, in sync with what we do on a daily basis. Our lifestyle is dependent on that. Our civilization is dependent on that. Our infrastructure is dependent on that. The air that we breathe is dependent on that. You know, we try to put it into context by putting some level of condition around it, right? This is a house, it's the conditions of what a house is. These are the legislations that we use, the policies that we incorporate into cities and buildings and designing businesses. But ultimately, they won't exist if the planet doesn't. So I think really when it comes to the relationship that we've created when it comes to business is... Don't worry about it right now because we don't need to worry about the consequences because that is external to the system and the externalities that us economists actually measure which is the consequences of our actions on the economy and the environment but don't worry about it that's external to our responsibility we've just you know brushed it underneath the mat nobody needs to be concerned about that and i think for me having business that has innate in it the ability to build the DNA of something that is replenishing earth doesn't make it a bad business. It makes it an even better business. It makes it a business that will last 50 years because you're doing something that's amazing for the environment what you create replenishes rather than depletes. If you are ultimately going to continue to deplete the environment, mining it, strip mining it, and you think that you'll have resources for a hundred years, you're mistaken. And that's where we are with, you know the understanding and appreciation of of something that is an afterthought don't worry about it put it into a dustbin nobody needs to be concerned about it you know we'll sort it out later that later never really comes that later comes right. so badly and so quickly that then you have disasters so it's it's really short sighted of somebody not to be concerned about what happens in the long term but i also recognise that you know if you're ma- if you're making a quick buck you know that you're not going to be thinking about the environment the number of organizations that I have had these conversations with where it's very difficult for them to see is this going to be benefiting my bottom line right now and quite frankly maybe it's not but nor will it be to have really bad carrots in the organization and the culture that you've created if you create a culture that is of mistrust that's very short-sighted and in the long term people are going to burn out they're not going to want to collaborate and work with each other you're going to increase the amount of competition in, in the actual, you know, in terms of game theory and and the psychology of the actual community that's working together and nobody's going to want to be there. So, you know, I think it's, it's in our, it's in our grasp, right. To, you know, not to consider the environment as an afterthought, but as a forethought, if you have mm-hmm. an organization and design of a business that by virtue of, like, from point A, from the way that you're designing the business not to have waste in it, that's a huge success already.
0: So let, let's uh, hit a practical example. Let's say somebody's starting a, a small business, um, you know, a small business targeted software company. What can they, you know, traditionally they wouldn't think of themselves as, you know, environment uh, impact would would not even be a factor in in their calculus of designing that business. Um, how would you give them guidance? Let's say it's a tiny little startup with two people that have some goal of building some software as a service product, let's say. what? How would you direct them to think uh, about sustainability and how to integrate that into their business?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first thing is I would move away from the word sustainable because sustainable is all about sustaining the status quo and we're moving away from the status quo. So the first thing is to think in terms of restoration or regenerative or, you know, these sorts of sort of like the the, the change in the word and the terminology is really important here yeah? because we're moving away from limitless growth. So the idea is to have, you know, if you look at the SDGs, they're a really good starting point. Think of it as a foundation. So the first thing that you do is look at all the SDGs and it's not one at the cost of the rest it's like oh I'm going to be really helpful to women but then the rest of the SDGs I'm not really going to be concerned with I appreciate there's a lot there but then there's a lot there not to to be aware of it's like you know a business that, that doesn't understand its risks so it's really to understand what are the risks to my business and what will long term have a huge impact on my bottom line so the first thing if there's two of you and you're thinking, right, I'm gonna start a, a really awesome software company, is to, to think about who's done it really well in your industry already, who's being successful and why they're being successful, and for how long will they be successful? There's lots of legislation that's coming in, there is a number of you know policies that will be impacting businesses on a, a number of scales. We have deadlines when it comes to um, you know climate mitigation tactics. So, for example, with California, I believe it is there is a new regulation that's coming in for uh, fossil fuel cars. So, anything that is non-electric, I think after twenty thirty something will not be allowed. Twenty thirty-five, so yeah, yeah. Thirty-five. Yeah, they just um,
0: they just announced it last week. Yeah, so they
1: just announced. It's it. a little long so, in my
0: view, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, totally, <laughs> oh,
1: way too long. Like thinking in terms of China and and bringing in sort of like zero waste regenerative organizations and or communities and legislation by twenty sixty is like I think I'm gonna be dead by then. <laughs> if, if things continue the way that no, they you're, do, pretty, you're 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 pretty healthy.
0: It. I think you've got you've got uh, 40 I don't think it's no my health.
1: I mean I look after myself <laughs> extremely well, but I'm not too sure if the environment is actually going to be able to handle
0: yeah, from the you know the
1: amount of atrocity on it. So think in terms of looping it back in now if you if you have an output to your business that you can't account for you're going to need to find some kind of accountability for it so that's the easiest way so once you start looping in so for example take coca-cola the innovation workshop that we did in 2014 it was what can we do in places like india where we have you know an incredible delivery of our coca-cola bottles what else can we do their distribution is second to none. And in India, where you won't find a tetanus jab, a polio jab in your local community, you'll find a Coca-Cola. So piggybacking that, the supply chain is absolutely incredible. How can you get education, healthcare education, access to healthcare in the labels even, right? In In the distribution of their service, of their product. So it's almost like looking at different ways that you can you know change the business model so that it's much more appropriate for you know society other SDGs thinking terms of like every year i want to approach one more SDG if if already it's quite overwhelming
0: and can you uh, step back for a second and for those that, that are listening along that don't know what SDGs are can you do kind of a quick 30 yes. second explanation
1: yes of course so the SDGs are a list of suggestions in a variety of different areas. They stand for Sustainable Development Goals. The predecessors were the Millennium Development Goals. They were designed by Jeffrey Sachs and his team at the Earth Institute with the aim solely at the UNFCCC to really incorporate a variety of different regulations that were coming online across the world as the sort of, you know, um, a very simple curriculum that you are to follow if you want your firm your organization, your NGO, um, your household, to be much more aligned with um, the, the greater practices of regenerative, you know, ecology.
0: Got it. Thanks for that. So, as a non-American, obviously by your accent, um, <laughs> uh, what what are your impressions of of this current administration that America unfortunately has uh, towards you know environmental issues, particularly?
1: I think pretty scary, um, but but fun. I mean, the reason why I say both is because as an observer, I mean, I've, I've been to the states a number of times. And I've had the fortune of, of, you know, going to a number of states in the states as well. So each state has got its own feel and its own essence. And each state has got its own legislation that is, you know, somewhat way, you know, um, inspiration, inspirational. And I feel that as an, as an observer, but with my own subjective experiences in the states there is a huge amount that can be done but of course it's about meeting the people where they are and if people are aware of what's going on the consequences outside of their state they may or may not you know want to change their minds about things but ultimately it's about you know we can have as much information available to people as possible but the biggest move in the last I would say maybe forty years has been really to um, misinform the public, to to almost displace the responsibility from the people who are making the products to the people who are governing those products to now the people who are consuming those products. We have become consumers, and ultimately, the moment that you are a consumer, right, you're you're already in an addictive mindset. One wouldn't call themselves a consumer unless if you're consuming. But what is it that you're consuming? You never come out of the cycle of consuming, and there's this sort of addiction that's related to the insecurity within a fear-based, you know, scarcity model of economics, of business, of products, of of services. where it's it's, it's more about, you know, what can I get you to buy? you're never going to stop buying something because that's the way that the model works. Every single time you buy something, it's a metric that looks good on the GDP and it doesn't really matter whether you're buying cigarettes or a new pair of lungs because you've, you know, messed up your lungs from smoking, chain smoking, 40 cigarettes a day. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that it looks good on the bottom line of of our accounting system. So it's our accountability, not only to ourselves, but also in the financial system, which, you know, it does extremely well from, you know, the expenditure of things that may or may not be good for us. There's no, yeah. there's no ethics in that.
0: Yeah, I heard an interesting quote. Somebody said uh, the other day, uh, "We have everything that we want and nothing that we need." Um, so it's a, quite a brutal assessment. But um, more specifically, you know, with the with Donald Trump and his environmental policies or lack thereof. You know, is American leadership even even relevant anymore in the world? Because America used to lead on this, uh, and the Paris Accords were you know pushed by American administration. Um, what are your thoughts? Kind of, is America really even relevant to this discussion anymore, or has somebody else picked up the baton? That's
1: a really good question. I think, globe, like geopolitically speaking, I think Asia's been a forerunner when it comes to legislation. I also think that they're also seeing the effects of you know, first world countries having such a negative impact on their own economies. So if you look at, you know, rubbish that is being imported into Thailand, sorted, and then recycled, or into places like the Dharavi slums in Mumbai, where they make well over a billion dollars, just on the waste of others, I think it's becoming more and more visible to them, like you walk down the street in India, and there's a pile of rubbish, another pile of rubbish. and before you know it, you're walking down a dustbin. You become blind to it until it becomes, you know, and and somebody brings it to your vision. And I think that countries that are experiencing, you know, sea level rises, uh, entire coastlines that have been devastated by climate-related issues to, you know, mass consumption to the extent where even in China there are, you know, pollinators that are humans because bees don't exist. So it's the Yeah, it's really fascinating now. That much of that Black Mirror episodes (laughs) of the little bee drones being like, uh, you know, little strange beings that are dotted around is almost becoming a reality. It's very strange, but it is. It's if if we're we're sort of like we're skimming at the moment, you know, without having to do much, and I think we're we're going into periods of our lives where. Inaction is not possible anymore. It's just not. It's you know, even yeah. when it when it comes to wearing a mask, pandemic, right? Like inaction, right. not wearing a mask, and or, uh, although you know, hands up, you know, I I've had COVID, so you know, I've got the I've had the blood test, and you know, there's proof that that I've actually had it, and obviously I've survived it, um, but I'm still a risk to others, and and I take that quite seriously, although you know, the idea of wearing a mask is sort of an an action. So what are the actions related to the climate? You know, where you purchase your items, where you create, you know, output. If you were to put all of your waste of the entire year in your house, would you be able to handle that? Would Would you think about what you're consuming just based on the choices that you have, the consequences of which you would have to suffer because it'd be in your space? So I think that sort of personalization of the issue is really interesting and important because it, it makes us much more aware of the consequences to our choices. Every single time I spend a penny, uh, mentioned this in the TEDx as well, every time we put a morsel sort of food in our mouths, every time we have conversations with people across the world, everything that we do has consequences. And understanding those consequences in the, you know in daylight is really important. Recognizing where those echo chambers exist, where we know that we need to be a little bit more aware or a little bit more careful where we're treading. So yes, I am skirting around the political issue, but I also think that there has never been a time where the power of the people has been more important. And there has never been a time where dictatorships have become more prevalent. So I really do think that the use of technology for of the masses to sort of you know, redirect conversations and or, you know, even when it comes to uh, quoting the social dilemma, even when it comes to sort of like doing a Google, a simple Google search, and you and I will will have completely different results that, that different appear results, on our screens. Yeah. And it's very-
0: Well, you know, um, it feels like most people feel powerless when it comes to uh, environmental issues on a personal level. So they kind of throw their hands up and say, hey, I can't make a difference. I'm just one person out of, you know, almost eight billion what advice would you give them for them to understand that they can make changes? Um, and then we'll, we'll, in the next question, we'll turn it back to business. But on a personal level, what can people really do to feel like they're making a difference? Because I think that's the biggest motivator is kind of feeling successful in whatever they're trying to do.
1: These are little wins, but really big wins in the long term. Little wins are, you know, everything is so incredibly interconnected. Think about your health, like the the better your immunity, the better your you know, long-term longevity, the better that you, you know, consider your clutter, you know, the the more you're thinking about your space, the, the more you're thinking about your mental health, the more you're thinking about your physical health, all of these things intertwine. And the moment that we think that they're separate, the moment that we think we're separate, the moment that we think that we're visitors, that we're not part of the planet, I think that's when we go downhill. The moment that we can recognize that everything that happens around us is part and parcel of the ecosystem that we've created and that we have a part in playing in in the design of that, whether it's epigenetically reinforcing, like through the nurture element, our own behavior, or that of others, we have a part to play in that. And that's the power that we have. And of course, it would make a lot of sense to disempower you because when you don't feel that you can do something about it, you won't. But it's as simple as, Every time you shop, make sure that you know the packaging is what you want it to be. You've got choices there. Every time you spend your money, every time you put your kids through education, you make choices. And there are long-term consequences to every single choice that you make. So when it comes to a personal level of um, you know identification of what you're doing, just be aware. Like your awareness is the most difficult. You know, the the attention that you put into something. Is the economy right now? So, where your attention goes, and what you're doing, and how you're becoming aware is in itself a journey.
0: So, yeah, that's good advice. That uh, at the very least, people can make choices of where they put their dollars to work, or what have you, currency, um, their their economic um, their their spending essentially. Now, if you were to you know run the world, and I I, I hope to get a chance to vote for you for something one day. <laughs> um, what would you do from a, from a political standpoint? I mean, what do you think it needs to be done from the government standpoint to really nudge into the right direction, nudge uh, people and make them realize that uh, they should be making changes to how they live?
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I've talked and thought about this a huge amount from the city's perspective, like how do you design cities that are ecologically you know, appropriate to how do you design businesses? How do you design um you know, lifestyles, how do you z- design communities, whether they're digital or physical. Um, if i If I could do one thing, it would really be to help people become really aware of the consequences of their actions. I think to change anyone's behavior that's that's not what I think is appropriate, and it's uh, it almost takes away the sort of fun of of doing what you want to do, like that kind of choice that you have. it's It's really empowering. To be able to make your own choices. But from a governance level, I, you know, take the example of a road. A road is a communal space. If one person drives down that road with a car and is a hazard, it can have huge impacts on people on the streets, maybe on a bicycle, somebody, a grandma that's walking across the street. So one can become a hazard on communal spaces where others also exist. And that's effectively the tragedy of the commons where we have overgrazing of lands that are for communal use. So when it comes to the protocols or the governing principles of the global commons, which is basically where where we are, the globe is a global communal space. And in this global communal space, there are countries, there are citizens of each of these countries. And I would give and invite everybody to go beyond the level of country, the level of community, and to the level of global citizenry, and invite them to make decisions based on that. That's the one thing that I would do. So the infrastructure that I would create, if I, if I may, is like a, a driving test. You are a hazard to your local community if you do not drive well. This is not about whether you've got privilege or not. I would give everybody the opportunity of driving their car, but the aim <laughs> is to move them into a space of safety for themselves and for others. So that's the, for me, the governing, you know, principle that I would introduce that this is our communal territory and it is it is our communal responsibility. The Japanese call it rentai sekinin, the responsibility of the communal area. And every month, everybody comes out and sort of like, you know, brooms up, cleans up. They do that at school. So it's kind of like inbuilt into the community. And I think it's really beautiful. And I also find that it doesn't really matter whether what age you are or, or what industry you work in. Everybody's got a broom in their hands and everybody's working to, to to have this sort of communal aim. And I feel that unless if we have these sorts of global scares like the pandemic, the number of people that have been working together, I see them all across all of my Slack channels, all of my WhatsApp channels, so Facebook groups, et cetera, everybody coming together and saying, right, what do we need to do? Let's make sense of this. Let's gather information about this. Let's help others out where that information may not be available. Why is there an asymmetry um, you know, to the information? How can we get you know, supplies to people? All of these things. And when we pool our resources together, we have abilities beyond any one individual. So I think that's the thing about competition versus collaboration. Competition is very much the gladiator game. I'm going to win. You're going to lose. Right? I've got the nuclear power. You don't. I've got the military power. You don't. The first thing that you're going to do when you've got the ability is to go out and go and get some weapons. So the militarization of our economies have have eventually led to these weapons being created, but then need to be used. You can't just store them away somewhere. I mean, it costs a lot of money to make them. So, of course, the first thing that you're going to do is to go and use them and you need an excuse to use them and you will find an excuse to use them
0: yeah i mean that, that's uh, that's quite interesting is um this concept uh, there's viral videos that go out that show how kids in japan are uh, doing the cleanup for themselves and it's interesting that uh that's that direction of communal kind of aspect and and mindset more than anything uh that is definitely a good place to start i think i, I definitely agree with you so y- you work with some of the biggest brands in the world younger generations uh Put a lot of value into sustainability and in the environment or beyond sustainability and that's really refreshing and certainly some of these brands want to appeal to this younger audience but in your, in your uh, work with them, do you see that this is kind of getting beyond the marketing budget and they're taking this much more seriously and much more core? And, and how does your work with these large uh, entities look like?
1: Mm. It, it's quite scary for them. Of course, you know, when the Ellen Macarthur's of the world was sort of presenting pictures of what was happening in the Pacific Gyres as she was sailing across the world it was quite scary for people and her first approach was not to start pointing fingers but was to say well why is there a coke can in the middle of the ocean where nobody's drinking coke here like who is it is it this whale and I think that that sort of you know the conversation the starting conversation is really important to have because we're not to blame we're all responsible I've bought coca-cola in the past I've drunk coca-cola in places and you know the, the sort of the communal responsibility is really important there I feel when it comes to these massive organisations, they're like countries. They're they're like they're, their incomes are like GDP. They've got the power to do so many amazing things, but they're slow. And they're slow because perhaps their organisational structure is much bigger and takes way longer to budge them and move them. So of course, it's taken them a really long time to identify whether this is an actual, you know, marketing strategy because they've got products because they've got customers because people are asking about it. And and it's sort of like a, a very strange loop. Should we make it because because somebody's asking for it or should we then make it and then see if the actual, you know, products are available and, and important to people. It's like a, a typical sort of branding exercise would be, why don't we identify almost like personas of people that would be interested in a Tesla, for example, and or create the persona that would attract, you know, the, the purchase of a Tesla. So it's one of those, do you create the product and then create the customer and then identify the customer according to that product, which is you know the values that you have in the actual product. And what does this mean? Are you gonna open a bottle and open cocoa like open a bottle open happiness? You know, there are messages that are put out, you know, across the board that can be quite detrimental to our health when you know what we're saying is, you know, if you can take a really nice picture and like it on Facebook, then you're acceptable. And if not, then you know, people don't like you. And so there are the number of suicides that have been going up in in younger groups is actually quite shocking across the world because of that. But when it comes to the bigger brands, I think they have started to realize that there, it's it's as simple as if we don't like just supply chains, like, you know, 2016, when there was that huge blizzard in New York and New York was out, every inch that needed to be cleaned up of that snow cost about a billion dollars. And every inch that they had to clean up, they then subsequently had to consider all the economic crises that would happen because people couldn't take their supplies across the city, you know, bringing it in, taking it out, all the manufacturing down, all the people residential that couldn't go to their jobs. I think it's these sorts of experiences that are giving companies the opportunity to start mitigating those risks. So they know already they've got budgets available where it's like, right, you know, if we get another disaster like this, this is what we're going to do to prepare, and it's just natural that they would be preparing. So their marketing strategies, of course, everybody would want to market a little bit more than what they're doing, right, to kind of attract more people to sort of like say, "Hey, I'm here. These are the products and services that we have. No, this is what we have." Um, so, so there's going to be a natural sort of competition there for attention in that field, but ultimately the The person who's purchasing has to have the opportunity to make those decisions from a super young age and growing up. You don't get to the age of 18 and then get called an adult and then, you know, from literally school where you have to put your hand up to go to, you know, relieve yourself to ask permission to do so. But then you're choosing the universities that will have a huge impact on your long term education there has to be responsibility from a young age where you are making decisions based on your socio-political views, bringing in different kinds of legislation. What is your perspective when it comes to immigration? Is it a humane approach, a nationalistic approach? What are these approaches? Why don't you learn about them at school? Why aren't we taught these at school? So there is a sort of like, like you would the SDGs, you know, a list of these sorts of legislations like My Vote does, where it's the moment that you've read through all of them, all the different kinds of policies you then get a green light to actually vote but if you don't know what any of these policies are and I put my hands up at the age of 18 I didn't know who I was voting for because I was never taught at school and I never took it upon myself as a responsibility to actually take that on either and very much like my own you know methodologies for preventative health management I thought that NHS was going to help me till death did us part it's only because of the experiences that I've had with people who are very very close to me that i know that triage actually exists and if there are consequences to my bad health and bad eating and bad habits i think i would have really liked to have known that a long time yeah. ago
0: so if you i mean it would be fair to summarize i guess then that uh, for these companies perhaps their motivation is uh, more marketing driven because they want to appeal to this audience that has a different value system. But then those uh, those marketing initiatives could drive the big changes inside the business. Would that be fair to I say? I see it as
1: a ratio. Exactly. I see it as a ratio. The more people demand something, the more the supply is then created. It's one of those. And I think that naturally when people are talking about well have you got parabens in your item i don't really want to buy that oh you've got plastic Mm, nah you know you can make those choices and it's actually quite surprising the moment that like market forces will determine because this is a free market that we exist in the moment that you have a carrot for these companies that you know where it's like okay well whew now we're going to be reported on our waste like they're actually going to do a waste audit and start measuring how much waste we've got and then they're going to use it as a metric we've got to do something about this we can't look bad no this is going to look really awful the culture is created by the director of the organization right the ceo is responsible mm-hmm. for poor performance of a business to stakeholders or shareholders or whoever else is involved in the actual business so it's a it's you know when you look at your entire sort of accounting system in businesses and you're looking at the different sorts of consequences from where you're actually purchasing your products from the consequences to the people the local consequences the ecological consequences and the cost to society because of that that cost is becoming more and more and more the actual businesses cost so it's less the government's taking responsibility it's less the consumer taking responsibility and the last 10 years businesses are becoming way more you know responsible for those kinds of costs so because businesses are you know being shown a mirror to the you know the afterthought scenario where it's don't worry go out there make all of your money and then if you've got some left maybe put it into a you know kind of a charity or donation or philanthropy so philanthropy and charities actually exist to kind of survive off organizations that make huge sums of money but many of these organizations at least the, the ones that we've experienced in the last 50 years have been depleting and they run through this sort of you know, scarcity model. So it's time to shift that. What happens, you know, you can still go out there and make huge sums of money, but your business model is slightly different. So it's really a case of how is your business model going to shift because of this?
0: Yeah, and then uh, kind of to extend on that, what advice would you give founders of startups, right? The opposite of the large enterprises that you've been working with, because uh, a lot of the companies, like we discussed at the beginning, are uh, a lot of the founders, you know, have these traits in their character, and they have this value system they want to put into the companies that they build. How would you advise them if you were an advisory board of a tiny little startup? How would you direct them into kind of building this type of business from the beginning?
1: Mm. I mean, it's a really, really good question, and I've come across it a number of times because we've done accelerators, we've, uh, you know, we've worked on hackathons, we've worked with a number of young people who are interested in creating businesses. We, you know, ran the uh, Clean Tech Challenge, the um, a variety of different summits related to this. And it's really fascinating because you've got an idea and you want to do something and you want to do something good. So there is that pressure. But ultimately, it's about creation. And it's about value that you're creating. For another person, and that value can be something that may not have been created before. So, there is absolutely no reason that you should listen to any of the businesses before you because you can go out there and create value that has never been experienced before by anybody before. So, this sort of legacy system that we've inherited doesn't have to be our legacy system. You can decide that all of those things that people have created before are really interesting, but I'm just not going to go down that route. So, have full you know, support in yourself and acknowledgement that what you create, you have the ability to completely and utterly shift the behaviors of, of the people that will be buying your items or not buying or buying your service or whatever. So the first piece of, of um, you know, recommendation that I've got is that, that's not your issue from the past. That's not your past. You don't have to continue it at all. You can break the cycle in deciding how you're going to be changing your business model. And then look at your business model. Look at the forethought, right? Replenishing as a forethought. Look at how this can be part of the DNA of your organization. Get in contact with us. Happy to work with you happy to advise on the different sort of supply chains that you can analyze understand your waste audits understand your sort of like co2 footprinting and it's not about you know we're going to create this sort of harm to the environment don't worry about it i can then pay off my guilt it's not about paying off your guilt it's it's like don't worry about it like you know i can you know buy another 10 trees to cover the cost of don't make it in the first place that you have to go and buy you know 10 trees to to, to pay off your guilt or your carbon you know tax. Do it so that you are the company that is being supported by these organizations that are slow to the you know to the start line, really.
0: Well, that's uh, I think a great uh, place to to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much. Uh, so this has been accelerated with my guest, Dr. Tia Kansara an award-winning sustainability expert, entrepreneur, and economist. You can learn more about her work at linktree/ That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash replenishearth or at Tia Kansara on Twitter. And as always, you can find me at golem.net. I'm going to put both links uh, into the show notes for you. And I encourage you to, uh, to think about uh, how you're going to build your businesses, how you're going to transform your existing businesses, so you can replenish Earth. Tia, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so lovely to see you. And uh, thank you for all the great work that you do.